welcome to Straight Thinking, a GPS for the Christian mind, teaching you how to think, not just what to think. This is Joe Aguirre with theologian and philosopher Kenneth Samples. Dave Rogstad is off today. On today's podcast, we welcome philosopher Kyle Keltz on the program. Dr. Keltz holds an MA and a PhD from Southern Evangelical Seminary and is Associate Professor of English and Philosophy at South Plains College in Levelland, Texas. We'll get into more of his bio as we go along. But first, uh, welcome, uh, Dr. Keltz. Good to have you. Thank you, Joe. And thank you, Ken. Uh, thank you all for having me. It's great to be on the podcast this morning. Uh, Ken, for new listeners, remind us of RTB's Visiting Scholar program and how we get to hear from scholars like Kyle. Yeah, one of the really exciting features, I think, Joe, of RTB over the last few years is our uh, scholar community, which includes uh, the regular Visiting Scholar program. So uh, I think we probably have between four or six Visiting Scholars each year. And uh, it's a real shot in the arm to RTB. I, I, I think George Haraxon has said that we have more than 100 uh, scholars in our in our scholar community. So it kind of uh, expands the outreach of reasons to believe. And uh, we also benefit from having scholars come in. And so today, I'm excited to kind of pick Kyle's mind a little bit here about uh, uh, the problem of evil, the hiddenness of God. And so uh, I, I think one of the, the most exciting features of RTB right now is the scholar community. Mm. Very good. All right. Well, uh, let's go ahead and get to know Kyle. I know you have some questions, and I'll jump in uh, here and there as well, Ken. Very good. Uh, Kyle, I wonder if you'll tell our listeners a little bit about your faith journey. How did, how did, you, uh, how did your faith uh, journey begin? And uh, give us a little bit of a background. Okay. Yeah, Ken, that would, that would be great. Um, you know, my faith journey really um, is uh, a crucial aspect of kind of understanding uh, where I'm at right now and uh, how I got into philosophy and apologetics. Uh, I, I was, uh, like y'all mentioned, I'm from Texas. I was raised in West Texas. Um, my, my family is Christian. Uh, my mom and dad uh, taught me about Christianity growing up. Uh, the only problem is that I didn't... Uh, I mean, I was just pretty much obsessed with video playing video games uh, when I was growing up, and I thought church was pretty boring, and I didn't listen much. I just fell asleep in church a lot. Uh, I, I honestly, thinking back on it, whenever I started to get into junior high and high school, um, I called myself a Christian, but I, I, thinking back on it, I, I really think at this time, I thought that being a Christian means that you go to church every once in a while and uh, you're Republican, <laughs> you know, from Texas. So I just um, thinking back on it, you know, I, I don't think I even understood the gospel message. Uh, I, I just, I can't remember actually that clicking. I, I do kind of remember praying a sinner's prayer when I was pretty young, but uh, I, I, I just don't think um, I understood it. So uh, whenever I got out of high school, I went straight into the military. 
I went into the army and uh, this was an interesting time in my life, not only being in the military, um, but also being away from my family and friends for the first time in my life and not having, you know, them there to kind of make appearances. So I really started to think more for myself and, and, and start expressing more what I was feeling. And uh, I, I just, um, at this time, I just was uh, kind of, you know, on a quote unquote search for truth. Uh, but I quickly became atheist. Um, I, I didn't think, I, I mean, thinking back on it, I had all these service level problems with Christianity, you know, um, if, if Jesus is supposed to be the savior of the world, you know, uh, just objections that are, you know, once you get to apologetics are easily answerable. But like one problem I had is I thought that if, if Jesus died for everybody's sins and you have to believe in Jesus, then what about everyone who lived before Jesus? You know, sure. uh, I mean, just many things that I, I've, I've, you know, after learning about theology, I realized there were really easy answers to it, but I just couldn't find anybody with the answers I was looking for. So I, I thought that Christianity was ridiculous and, and none of it was true. Um, I, I started looking into other religions. Um, I was, I was an atheist for a while. Uh, I, I, I kind of switched to more agnostic, um, but I, I I actually, as weird as it might sound, I, I was in the military in the infantry, but I started reading philosophy on my own time. Wow. And I, I I really, um, I I can, I trace it back to, and I still have this book on my bookshelf. Um, I don't, I don't remember what led to it, but I eventually ordered this anthology on the philosophy of religion. Mm. And, uh, I remember, I distinctly remember wrestling with this one article written by J.P. Moreland wow. on the Kalam cosmological argument. <laughs> and I just, I tried and tried to try to get around the idea that there had to be a beginning to the universe, yeah. that uh, time could still be um, uh, infinite into the past. So right. there didn't need to be a creator. And I, I just couldn't, I couldn't come up with an answer to it. Uh, so that was really what led me on the road to uh, being more open to Christianity. And uh, it, it wasn't too long um, after that. I think it was about 2005, I became a Christian. Okay. Uh, but I was, um, I was, uh, I was like in my 20s at this time. So, mm-hmm. um, so it was an interesting time. And then uh, that that led me to um, eventually Eventually, after that, I met my wife. Uh, we got married. I started going to seminary, and uh, I've I just um, I, I love apologetics. I love philosophy, and and one thing that I um, have a heart for is is being there for people who were in my situation, young mm. people uh, leaving the house for the first time and having a bunch of questions and not realizing that there's uh, great answers out there. So, wow, that's great, Kyle. Um, Straight thinking talks. We talk a lot about books on this program. I've I've noticed that uh, you know two of my favorite Christian thinkers are Saint Augustine and C.S. Lewis. And not only did people play a role, key role in them coming to faith, but reading particular books was important for Augustine and Lewis in kind of coming to grips with Christianity. Tell us a little bit, maybe, about some of the books that influenced you in, in the direction that you decided to take? Oh, okay. 
Yeah. So, um, you know, as, as far as be, leading me on the road to becoming a Christian that, uh, I think it, I can't remember what that book was called. It, it's like a philosophy of religion, um, an anthology or something like that. But, um, you know, think, thinking about what books have really influenced my outlook on apologetics, theology, um, what happened was, um, it, it's funny, after I met my wife, um, after we were married, we were, we used, we both used to travel a lot for work. And I think we were on our way back to Dallas one weekend. And she asked me, you know, we, we were just uh, having fun conversations. And we, we asked the question, what would you do if you had a billion dollars? And my, my answer was, well, I would go back to school and learn all the theology and apologetics I've always wanted. <laughs> and she just talked me into just, she said, why don't you just do that instead of trying to retire and then do that? So mm-hmm. that was really a, an amazing time for me because I started going back to school and learning everything I always wanted to learn. So, um, but I chose uh, Southern Evangelical Seminary uh, right. because uh, it's almost, um, I think at this time, this was in the early 2000s. Uh, no, no, I think it was around 2011 or so. And back then, uh, there, were, there weren't too many programs that were distance. Yeah. And uh, SES was fully online, and that was what we needed. I was in Arizona, we were in Arizona, and uh, I, I chose SES to do apologetics. I wanted to get full, I wanted to get uh, plenty of philosophy in so I could go into a PhD program, but I also wanted it to be grounded in the Bible. Um, and I wanted to learn about uh, arguments for God's existence and arguments for Jesus' resurrection. So SES was perfect for me. Whenever I was there in the master degree program, I, I, uh, I became more familiar. Uh, if, if your listeners know uh, Southern Evangelical Seminary, one of its distinctives is their philosophy professors uh, have uh, a lot of experience and kind of specialize in the philosophy of Thomas Aquinas. Yeah. So uh, when I was exposed to that, I really, uh, uh, I really began to really enjoy, uh, and and I, I. I really found the the philosophy of Thomas Aquinas, that more classical philosophy that was adopted from Aristotle and, and other um, medieval and classical philosophers, I've really found it compelling. So I, I, I wanted to go on and, and get my PhD there as well, so I could specialize in it even more. So having said all that, the Summa Theolo- uh, Theologica, the yeah. Summa Contra Gentiles, these have had a, a huge effect on me. I mean, I've obviously learned systematic theology. Uh, you know, my go-to resource usually is Wayne Grudem. Uh, but as far as like my my outlook on apologetics and my general metaphysical view of the world, it's really been shaped by Thomas Aquinas and that classical tradition. Um, there, there's just so many amazing things in, in the summas that uh, kind of, give you this idea on, on what God is like and uh, why God created the world and why God created human beings. You know, what are human beings and what's the difference between humans and animals and all that. Yeah. And uh, Aquinas and his Sumas have had just a huge influence on me. Yeah, I was, uh, Norm Geisler was a good friend of mine. We even had a, uh, a friendly debate one time, whether who is the greater philosopher, Augustine or Aquinas. And uh norm was a 
Norm was such a uh, articulate advocate for appreciating Thomas Aquinas, appreciating Thomism. Um, I personally think that uh, uh, Thomas is such a bright light that more Protestants, uh, more evangelicals need to consider him. Let me ask you this, Kyle. Um, I know you've done a lot of work in the field of the problem of evil. You've looked at various theodicies. Um, tell us a little bit about, uh, I, I know you have a particular book here. I'm going to get the title is Thomism and the Problem of Animal Suffering. Is that available, by the way, on Amazon? Uh, yes, it is, Ken. It's, uh, it's, um, it was published through Whip and Stock. Okay. And it's, it's basically available anywhere you can get a book. Um, it's Great. on Amazon. It's on the uh, Whip and Stock's website. I think you can even get it at Christian Book, Barnes & Noble, Great. places like that. But yeah, you can get it on, it's available as an ebook. I think you can even get it hardcover if you want, but it's also a paperback. Okay. Uh, but you can get it at all those places. Well, take a few minutes and kind of sketch out what you do in that book. What what motivated you to write that book? What conclusions generally did you come to? And, and that okay. was your dissertation, I believe, as well, correct? Uh, yes, it was. Okay. It was. <laughs> and and uh, I think we mentioned uh, earlier uh, in the hallway that it's dangerous to ask someone about their dissertation <laughs> because they can, they can talk all day about it. But uh, <laughs> I, I try to I'll try to keep it uh, succinct, but um, yeah, well, you know, to be honest, I never imagined it, it, this was my dissertation for the uh, PhD in philosophy of religion at SES, and I just never imagined that I would be studying uh, animal cognition and animal minds in seminary. Um, but I think. Uh, you know, one of my first classes actually at SES was a PhD class with Norm Geisler uh, about the differences between um, Protestants and Catholics. Yeah. <laughs> so that was a really uh, a great in intro to the PhD program. But my, I think my second class that I took uh, was on the problem of evil. And uh, one thing that they were suggesting to us was that if you can figure out your dissertation topic early on, to just go ahead and try and write every single paper you do for all the classes wow. as close as you can to that topic. Yeah. And uh, that's, that's what I, that's what ended up happening. Um, I don't remember how I was introduced to it, but it was in this class on the problem of evil in the PhD program that I first came across a book called, um, Oh, what's it called? It's called nature red and tooth and claw by Michael Murray. Yeah. And at the time, um, it, it was really, and in, in some ways, I still think it's one of the best books on the problem of animal suffering. Uh, but especially if you're conservative, it was the best book at the time. Right. Um, Murray tackles the, tries to t tackle the problem of animal suffering uh, by mentioning all these neo-Cartesian ideas of, about animal minds and also um, exploring reasons why we think God made the world he did. And uh, I just, I read that book and I found it so fascinating. Mm -hmm. And um, I hadn't really heard of the problem of animal suffering before, but it made complete sense to me. Uh, you know, and, and I know we've been, oh, well, I guess I can talk about this when I talk about the book. Um, I know we've been throwing around the uh, label problem of animal suffering, but I'll, I'll, I'll mention what that is here in a second. 
But um, yeah, I, I just read that book and I, I thought it was fascinating. And I, I thought, man, I, I, I just, I, I loved what uh, Murray had to say in that book. But I also thought that some of the things I'd been looking at uh, in Aquinas's thought could provide an even more comprehensive and robust answer to the problem of animal suffering. So that's what I decided on. I think it was like my second class in the PhD program. And I, I, if, if I could at all, I wrote every paper on the topic. And then when it was time to do my dissertation, I just, I just kind of threw them all together. Yeah. Um, so, but it, it ended up, um, it was five chapters. So, and, and it, this, my dissertation was published as a book that you said, uh, Thomism and the Problem of Animal Suffering with Whip and Stock. And uh, it was five chapters. The first chapter just introduces the problem. This is where I explain the problem. I um, talk about uh, proponents of the problem. People have argued that God doesn't exist because of animal suffering. And then I, I survey people who try to answer it as well. Um, and, and if any of your listeners aren't sure or haven't heard of the problem of evil before, uh, problem of animal suffering, excuse me, it, it is, the, it is uh, something that atheists use to argue that God doesn't exist. And, and what they say is, uh, uh, if God was all-knowing, all-powerful, and all-loving, it seems like he wouldn't use millions of years of animal disease, death, and suffering just to make a place for human beings to live. Uh, but then they look at the natural history of the earth, and it appears that that has been happening. So they argue that this is evidence that God doesn't exist. Uh, so in my book, I tried to tackle this. Um, so I, I really, the, the most important chapters, obviously, are after the introduction. Uh, chapter two is kind of a preliminary uh, part of this. Uh, one thing that I, I thought was really amazing in Aquinas's thought, and, and this is relevant to Augustine as well, is their, uh, their privation view of evil. Right. Uh, which I know Augustine was a big proponent of, uh, but Aquinas adopted this as well. And I, I noticed that this uh, privation view of evil actually has big implications for animal suffering. Um, the thing is, uh, you know, for those familiar with the privation view, it says that evil is a privation of the good. It's not a substantive thing in reality. It's an absence of something that ought to be there you know, like a hole in the ground, a hole is not a substance, it's an absence of a substance. Yeah. Uh, but, you know, when we talk about holes, we talk about dirt that, that uh, isn't there. Um, well, I, I realized that, you know, especially when you start looking into the science of animal minds and, and animal cognition and, and pain, uh, the thing is, pain, the sensation of pain is not a privation. I mean, I think it's caused by a privation, but pain and suffering, it turns out, are actually good things. And uh, it, it sounds kind of crazy when I say it that way, but pain and suffering actually um, are, are there to help us uh, survive in this world. Uh, an amazing thing is if you start to study uh, uh, pain in humans, also in animals, um, uh, you know, oh, I'm forgetting the name of this uh, disorder, but there's a disorder that children are born with where they can't feel pain. Yeah. And they found that these children don't last, but a few years tops hmm. uh, without the ability to feel pain in this world. We just, um, there's so many problems that can happen. And 
you, you know, so as, as crazy as it sounds, I, I, I use Aquinas's uh, privation view of evil to argue that suffering is actually a good thing. It's, uh, it would be a bad thing if it wasn't there. Um, but in this chapter, I also explored uh, Aquinas's view of God. Uh, you know, one thing that he says is that because God is, is infinite, infinitely perfect, our finite minds can't fully comprehend him. Sure. And um, without getting into the specifics, you know, one thing he would argue is that um, be, because God is infinite and because we can't grasp his infinite goodness, um, I, I would say that Aquinas probably would agree that we can't necessarily know what God ought to do. With with the problem of animal suffering, um, there were two main uh, people I wanted to to respond to in this book. Uh, one being w William Rowe, if you're uh, familiar right. with yep. his evidential argument, especially with the the fawn burning in the woods, right. and Paul Draper. Yeah, uh, Paul Draper. Uh, yeah, so William Rowe makes an evidential argument, arguing that all of this gratuitous suffering in the world points to God not existing. Paul Draper makes a, an inference to the best explanation kind of uh, uh, argument, saying that the world we see, uh, it, when you talk about theism and naturalism as kind of uh, hypotheses, explanatory models, uh, naturalism wins over theism. And uh, but one thing that's built into Rose argument is that an all powerful, all knowing, all good God ought to prevent gratuitous suffering. So my argument in chapter two was that for one, suffering is a good thing. And two, we can't know if God ought to prevent that. Mm -hmm. um, so it, it, it's, it's almost kind of like a Thomistic version of the, of like uh, skeptical theism, but it's not the same. Skeptical theism is this idea that God um, has a good reason for allowing every evil. We just don't know it because we don't have the mind of God. My argument was just that we can't know what God ought to do. We can't necessarily attribute obligations to him because we don't understand what it is to be actually and uh, infinitely uh, perfect and, and all that. So, um, and I'm sorry, I'm, I probably should be doing a better job of, of making this more succinct. Fine. That's just... That's just chapter two, but uh, chapter three uh, is one of my favorites. And this is what I really couldn't believe I was uh, studying in, in seminary. But uh, chapter three is whenever I turn my attention to uh, animal, so-called animal minds in, in, in science and philosophy of animal minds, they call animal minds. Um, you know, in, in the Thomistic world, you usually wouldn't say animal minds, but anyways, um, I studied uh, the philosophy of animal minds and, and the science of animal cognition to try to figure out what's the difference between humans and animals. And do we really think that they possibly uh, suffer and view the world or, or experience the world like humans do? And uh, I was I was surprised, um, you know, just being new to it, I was surprised to find uh, all of the, his, the scientific evidence that shows that they really don't seem to experience the world like we do. Uh, there's, there's evidence that, uh, I mean, there's so few candidates for self-awareness in the animal kingdom. Uh, I think maybe the closest ones are like great, uh, the higher apes, uh, elephants, uh, dolphins, maybe some birds, but, uh, there's so few, um, candidates for self-awareness and, and the, and, the I, and I think even the evidence regarding those, uh, more advanced animals it shows that they're not self-aware and uh, you know without getting into all the specifics of it another interest really interesting thing is that they don't think that uh, most animals 
or, or maybe no animals can what they call mental time travel. They can't even think of themselves in the future or the past. Wow. Uh, so when you start to think about what it is like to be an animal, um, I mean, they, they just don't, they don't experience the world as persons. There's no one in the end. I, I wouldn't ever argue that they don't suffer. I mean, uh, maybe, you know, some kind of like, like worms or, or other like really more simple creatures maybe they don't experience the world and, and they're just more mechanical but most every animal seems to be conscious but what i argue is that there's evidence that shows that they're not self-aware so they're not they suffer they experience pain and that helps them survive but they don't experience it as persons so there's no one in the animal kingdom saying i wish this wasn't happening to me or i, I hope i don't hurt tomorrow too um and, and that's hard for a lot of people to picture yeah. But the problem is that our type of awareness, um, one researcher calls it auto-noetic consciousness. Mm. We just have this active awareness that we cast upon the world. And it, it's, it's like intrinsically a personal awareness. So when you think about what it's like to be an animal, you're casting that auto-noetic personal awareness upon thinking about what it's like to be an animal. So you basically end up picturing what it's like to be a human while you're trying to picture what it's like to be an animal. So, um, so you know, I just try to morphic. We look at in light of us. Yes. Yep. Yes. You know, and I try, I try to explain it to people is it's just, you know, if you think of it, like consciousness is more of a passive thing. Awareness is more of an active thing. You know, if you've ever, um, one way I like to talk about it is like, if you've ever driven to work and you pull up to the, the office building or wherever, and you can't remember how you got there. <laughs> That's kind of, you know, it's kind of scary when you think about it, but the thing is like the whole time you were driving, you're, you were reacting to other cars. You were, you're, you were turning, you were braking, but your awareness was somewhere else. And you're thinking about what you're going to do that day or, or, you know, whether you um, uh, put the garage door down and, you know, you're like kind of the, the animal part of you was driving and the, the more self-aware part of you was thinking about these other issues. Uh, Kyle, I have a question on animal minds, and I don't know if this is off the topic, but so many of us have pets, and we can attest that uh, we can train them so that they are yes. so good at so many things that we can't do. How does that fit into the idea of animal minds, the fact that we can train them? Oh, yes, and, and, and that's... Um, you know, when you really start to get to the difference between humans and, and non-human animals, I really found uh, the, the Aristotelian Thomistic philosophy to be the most help. Um, the thing is, animals can learn. They have a lot of innate behavior uh, kind of built in, uh, but also they do learn a lot of things, and, and it's undeniable that they learn things that they, they didn't have at birth. Uh, but the, the one of the, the major ideas in animal cognition today is that animals mainly learn through what's called associative learning. Mm -hmm. um, so like usually any given thing they experience, they'll either associate it with a reward or a punishment. Mm -hmm. And if, if they associate it with a punishment, they'll avoid that thing. If they associate it with a reward, they'll associate it, you know, they'll, they'll want to get to that thing. So, you know, I was just thinking uh, the other day, trying to, how, how to explain this. And, you know, you, you just talk like, I, you know, take uh, teaching a dog to sit for, for example, 
you know, the, the word uh, sit to a dog, it's not like they understand the English meaning. Um, they, they don't think symbolically. Uh, it, it, uh, J.P. Moreland talks about the distinction between a sign and a symbol. For animals, everything's a sign. It points to a punishment or a, a reward. It doesn't actually mean something like a symbol does. So uh, when, when you say sit, what, what's going to happen is when they eventually realize that when you say sit and their bottom touches the ground, they're, they're going to get a reward for that. Yeah. And uh, so they can learn, but it, it's, it's, uh, it's mainly, let's say it's, it's more like inductive learning. Everything is particulars. You know, you associate this with this. Yeah. So it, it doesn't have to deal with symbolic, abstract thought. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, like one study they did into uh, animal minds had to deal with, I think it was, was with dogs and they were trying to see if they could do um, exclusionary reasoning. And they had uh, all these cups and there was a, a ball underneath one of the cups. And if the dog could pick the cup with the ball in it, it would get a reward, you know, and so sometimes they would, um, they would show them the cups and, and show them which one had a ball underneath it. Sometimes they would just uh, show them that one cup didn't have a ball in it. So they're trying to see if, if the, the dog is thinking, you know, or it, it can make exclusionary inferences like, okay, the, the ball's not in that. So it must be in this one. Yeah. Well, you know, some of the researchers thought maybe this is evidence that they're doing exclusionary like inferences uh the cup is not in this uh the ball is not in this cup therefore the ball is in this cup Uh, but but other researchers weren't convinced the the thing is uh in animal research usually we try to avoid anthropomorphic uh, anthropomorphizing if you can explain it in a more lower process then that's better than explaining it through attributing human reasoning to them and uh, so the, the more simple explanation is that they were just doing some kind of protologic. You know, if you remember, I mean, if you just, if you, uh, if you note that animals don't have language, right. Uh, they just, they're, if they're going to think it's going to be in pictures or sounds. So uh, what they think they're doing, what they think the animal is doing is more of like a protologic. Um, it, 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 it associates the ball not being under one cup with the ball being in the other cup and then getting a reward from getting the other one. Do you know what I'm saying? They're, they're not thinking it's not in this one. Therefore it's in this one. They're just, it, it's just a more of, it's just more steps to the reward. Mm-hmm. So, um, and, and again, you know, you kind of have to really uh, read through a lot of the research to, to wrap your mind around it. It's kind of hard to explain all in one sitting, sure. but it, it just, you know, and, and you know, I, I love animals. I, I, uh, I know it sounds crazy for me to get on here and say that animal suffering is good. Uh, but all I'm saying is that like the utility of it, you know, if we didn't, if we didn't suffer, uh, if they didn't suffer, they wouldn't last very long. So it's mm-hmm. a good thing for them to have the capability to feel pain. Um, and, but we just don't think that they're experiencing pain as persons. And, you know, it it gets really close to what C.S. Lewis said in, uh, uh, do you know what book that is, uh, Ken? There's one famous, um, uh, quote from C.S. Lewis. He says, animals, uh, basically when they experience pain, they get the letters P-A-I-N, but it's not, it's not put all together in order for them, you know? Mm -hmm. 
And, and whenever I was looking at the way it looks like they experience the world in this kind of impersonal present, I really think it's, it's like that. They experience pain, they avoid it, you know, it helps keep them alive, but they're not doing it in this personal self-aware way. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So, so I, I had a, uh, years ago, I had a debate with uh, John Mark Reynolds, who is a Christian scholar and uh, an advocate of the young earth perspective. But part of our discussion uh, was about animal suffering. And I raised the issue that, uh, in my view, uh, that, you know, animals are, are not persons and don't experience existential suffering. I, I had a near-death, I, I had a life-threatening illness uh, almost 20 years ago. And the great concern was my wife and my young kids. I don't see animals thinking, well, well who's going to care for my puppies? You know, um, that existential suffering is such a deeply personal component of it. So, well, let, let me shift gears yes. here a little bit, unless you have something you want to add to that. Um, it was on chapter three. <laughs> yep, I, want, I, want to, I want you to round it out for us. Okay, okay. Uh, Yeah, um, I I can just say a little bit about chapter four, uh, maybe a little bit about chapter five. Um, Chapter four was talking about, uh, um, and I'm I'm not familiar if Augustine talked about this much, but you know, that Neoplatonic idea of a hierarchy of being. Uh, What I wanted to do, I mean, in my mind, when you look at the nature of of suffering, when you look at God's goodness and whether we could know what he ought to do and, and, and look at the nature of animal minds, I honestly think it's, it's answered at that point, but I wanted to make it more compelling and show why we think God created in the first place. Mm -hmm. And uh, I I really loved it's um, Aquinas and Summa Contra Gentili's book two, chapter 45. He has many arguments for that hierarchy of being. And, and basically the idea is that God creates because, um, because God is all-knowing, all-perfect, um, excuse me, all, all-knowing, all-powerful, all-good, infinitely perfect. He really doesn't want for anything. And um, Aquinas adopted pseudo Dionysius on this, and he argued that the only reason God would really be inclined to create is to communicate his goodness because he is infinite love. Mm-hmm. Um, love doesn't want to keep itself, you know, love isn't selfish. So right. God would be inclined to, com- to uh, create a world to communicate his goodness to uh, other beings. You know, he, he wants to spread this love. And if you're going to share love, you need some other rational being uh, with an intellect and a will to share it with you. Yeah. Um, but because his, oh, go ahead. Go ahead. Continue. Oh, okay. Yeah. But because he wants to uh, all because the whole reason why he's creating is to communicate his goodness, he creates a hierarchy of being that kind of metaphysically points upwards to him. Uh, So there's inanimate objects at the bottom, then there's plants, animals and human beings at the top of the hierarchy. Um, Everything in the universe is supposed to is supposed to represent God in some way and point to his his goodness, Um, especially with human beings being made in the image of God at, at the top. Um, so I, I just talked about how, like, whenever God creates any world, he creates Aquinas argues for this, that it it can't be infinitely perfect. Only God is infinitely perfect. Also because of the nature of material uh, reality, he can't make an infinitely, you know, he can't make an actually infinite physical world. Uh, so any world you could conceive of, he could make a world with one better thing in it. 
Um, so he has to just pick some level of materiality and every world he's going to create is going to be finite. Yeah. So that entails that he's got to order it so that, you know, it, it works together. And, and I just think the philosophy really comes together with the science, because when you start studying ecology and all that, you realize that, you know, our world really is fine tuned and designed uh, for an, an ecosystem and everything works together. And it's also that human beings can exist. So um, I just use that to not only try to show people why we think the world is the way it is today, but also to kind of counter um, Draper's argument. You know, Paul Draper says that this is exactly the kind of world with all this death and suffering. This is exactly the kind of world we'd predict upon naturalism. I, I take issue with that because naturalism, actually, when you think about it, it doesn't make any prediction whatsoever. Because it, 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 it you know, upon naturalism, if anything exists, it's by accident. So it really does, doesn't have any predictive power, really. And I argued that theism predicts the world that we see way better because it predicts that any world that God creates is going to include rational beings in it. And um, I think that really actually uh, the philosophy, that idea that Aquinas had about God creating to communicate his, his goodness predicts that any world that will exist will have rational beings in it and a hierarchy of being that points to God. So Anyways, I, I just thought that was an interesting thought. And the last chapter was just over uh, whether God could allow death before the fall. And uh, I just talked about um, uh, philosophical problems. If you, if you try to apply any type of ethical system to God in relation to the kind of world he's going to create, there's issues with that. Um, so that, that's, that's kind of how I, I closed it out. Well, good. We want to encourage our listeners to uh, look for Kyle's book, Thomism and the Problem of Animal Suffering. Um, Kyle, I want to transition a little bit, not too far away, though. I've noticed that um, a number of academic philosophers uh, who, are, who hold a naturalist view who are atheistic, uh, they seem to be emphasizing rather than the traditional argument from evil, pain, and suffering, to an idea that I associate with it, and that is the hiddenness of God. John Schellenberg, for example, is a leading atheist, and I remember listening to an interview he gave in which he thought that's even more persuasive to adopting the position that God doesn't exist I wonder if what your thinking is on that topic, if you could kind of give us your, how you approach that, that challenge. Uh, yes. And I was, I was telling you earlier today that I'm actually, I'm working on a peer reviewed book uh, on the uh, problem of evil. And in this book, I was answering, I was, I was coming at it from a Thomistic perspective again, but I was, I was answering the problem of evil as formulated by several contemporary uh, philosophers. Uh, Paul, I included Paul Draper in there. Um, I, I, talk, I answer uh, Schellenberg on hiddenness, uh, Sturba on his logical problem with the Pauline principle, uh, Trichakis with his anti-theodicy, and Stephen Law's evil God challenge. Mm. Uh, and so I have a, I have a chapter, uh, there's, there's many portions where I uh, interact with Schellenberg, and so, uh, you know, his, his problem, his hiddenness problem can be formulated in more than one way. 
but I, I didn't find it uh, compelling. Well, I, I mean, of course, <laughs> I, I mean, I'm a Christian apologist, but I, 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 I think he makes some great points. I just don't, I didn't find his argument compelling, whether it was a logical or an evidential argument. Because uh, you can us frame what it, it is in, for, in both ways. For lay people, tell us what it is. Okay, yes. So Schellenberg's um, problem of evil is uh, he comes at it, you know, also known as the hiddenness argument. He thinks that if God is all-knowing, all-powerful, all-good, then you would expect that any world uh, in which people exist, there's not going to be anyone who's, and this is, this. Uh, tell me if this is confusing or not. Uh, he calls it, um, what, what is it? Non-resistant non-belief. He, he says that, if, if God is all-powerful, all-knowing, all-good, any world he creates, either the people that live in that world are going to have accepted him or rejected him, but he's not going to be hidden in the sense that there's going to be people who are in this state of non-resistant non-belief. So what he's saying is that when you look in this world, there's people who are basically, uh, they haven't taken a stance on whether God exists. They're not really seeking or rejecting God so that seems to be, uh, there, there seems to be moral issues with that. Um, one analogy he uses is uh, for his hiddenness argument is this, um, he says, you know, assume that there's some uh, orphan who, um, who, who's living in some city and his or her parent gets into town. I think it was, uh, uh, let's just say his, his parent gets into town, uh, but, but won't tell like doesn't communicate to the to the son that the parent is in town and when you start to think well so this 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 kid has always wanted to um well uh, how does the analogy work ken i think in the analogy that the child um you know knows that his parents might be out there but he's just not actively looking into it at the moment yeah it's the kind parent of comes into town they're playing hide and go seek and the parent won't make himself uh, appear to the child. And Schellenberg says, what kind of parent would act that way? Yeah. Yeah. Right. And he says, you know, if you expected this parent to be all loving, obviously the parent would contact the child as soon as possible. Uh, because even though the, the child, you know, is open the child's not actively looking for the parent and the child's not saying, well, I'm never going to look for the parent is the child's just going about his or her life. So he says, well, that wouldn't be all loving for the parent to show up into town and then not contact the, the child. And uh, if you, if you, uh, you can go about the argument a couple of ways. If you do it as an evidential argument, what he would be saying is that the amount of people in the world who are in a state of non-resistant non-belief is builds up to evidence that God doesn't exist. If you do it as a logical problem, basically it would say that there shouldn't be, I think as a logical problem, it'd be like, there shouldn't even be one person who's in a state of non-resistant non-belief. And, uh, I, you know, I, I have philosophical issues with this and uh, biblical issues the the phil as an evidential problem, you know, have uh, Ken, have you um, studied, uh, oh, what is it called? The, um, have you done much study? In, and, and this has to do a lot with world religions. Um, there's something called original monotheism. Yes, right. Which is this idea that people have actually believed in God from ancient times. And it's possible 
and likely that uh, the, all, the farther you go back, the more monotheistic people were. And actually the world religions we have today are a result of more of a devolution process or, right. or, or switching to pantheism or polytheism. Uh, what, what, regardless of all that, um, what, what I've found, you know, I teach, I, I teach a course on world religion at the community college where I work. And um, what I've, what, I, what you find in these intro books, to, even in the intro books to religion, they talk about how over the history of humanity, uh, 90% of people have believed in God or some kind of higher power. Yeah. So, uh, you know, when they talk about people who are, I, I think in our, you know, modern Western culture today, it's a lot easier to think that a lot of people don't believe in God or aren't seeking God. But when you look at the history of humanity, I, I just find it as an evidential problem to be not compelling. You know, yeah. if you're telling me that since 10% of the population uh, either is atheistic or doesn't care, uh, then that's evidence that God doesn't exist. I, I, I didn't find that compelling. But also as a logical argument, uh, you know, when we look at Christian theism, and, and especially whenever you look at some of the things I dealt with in, in my uh, animal suffering uh, piece, was that, you know, uh, and I, I'm sure a lot of people come with Romans as an answer to Schellenberg, but I, I just don't think God is hidden. Yeah. Uh, you know, um, so for one, we have, uh, and this is a, a, a amazing thing, or uh, something that RTB does an amazing amazing job at is is pointing out, uh, you know, um, general revelation, how the universe and just about everything in the universe points to God's existence. Uh, but also, we have a moral compass. We we have the law written of God written on our hearts. We know right from wrong, and everything God has created points to His existence. So I, I don't think he's hidden in that way, but also then we have a, we have revelation from God. Yeah. We have a Bible, you know, whenever you go back to Schellenberg's analogy, I, I think of it more like some, somebody uh, has, you know, they don't, they haven't met their parents yet, but they've been put up in this really amazing uh, uh, place. And there's a love letter there that tells them all about the parents and says, we're not here now, but we'll be back. And it might be hard while we're gone, but we're, we're, you know, trust me, I'll be there. But the, the kid doesn't even, the kid looks at the letter and is like, well, I don't even believe that they're real, you know, or, yeah. or I'm just not going to look at that letter. I'd rather watch TV. I, I think because God is doing so many things to, to uh, reveal himself to us, I just don't find that analogy very compelling. But also, you know, you and I were talking about this, Ken, earlier uh, I think also when you look at the biblical story, it, it explains hiddenness. Um, when you look at Genesis 1, you see that God created human beings in his presence. When you look at Revelation 21 at the end, you see that all human beings end up in God's presence. Uh, but why are we separated from God right now? It's because Adam and Eve sinned and we were kicked out of God's presence and there's separation between human beings and God. Um, so throughout the history of humanity after the fall, we were separated in a, in a way from God in that his presence was only on the earth in the tabernacles, the temples, uh, his presence, his presence was in, on the earth in, in the, uh, in human form in Jesus Christ, whenever, uh, he was on the earth, but, but now his presence is actually there is no separation between God and man in this uh, age, right? Like you can have God in you 
the Holy Spirit indwelling you like he did uh, in the tabernacle and temple. So um, uh, not only does the Bible explain why there is this type of separation for a time, but it also explains, um, you know, that God has always wanted to be in our presence. This just, there's a sin problem and Jesus Christ is the answer to that. You know, I, I feel, I honestly um, feel sorry for people who just deny all supernatural realities. An amazing thing that I learned after I became a Christian is, is you know, feeling God's presence, answers to prayer. Super, there's a whole supernatural world out there that people just shut off and they don't realize they really, you really can, you know, it's, it's not like you're talking to someone face to face, but you really can have a relationship with God and feel all sorts of uh, amazing supernatural things uh, when you become a Christian. So God's, God is not as hidden as, as Schellenberg would say. And uh, uh, I, I just, I didn't find his, his arguments compelling for those reasons. Yeah. When I've written on this topic, I, I raised the question is, is this a, a catastrophic sender failure or is it a catastrophic receiver failure? And um you know, when you think of yes, that's a great way to put it. <laughs> when you think of the effect of sin upon our life, I mean that even that there would be anyone who is uh, has non-resistant non-belief. You know, Paul says the natural the natural state of a fallen person is to resist that. And uh, but let me ask you another question. Our time is moving ahead, but I want to ask you one more question about how you think about God. Tell us a little bit about how you approach the existence of God. That is, do you move toward particular arguments, maybe cosmological, teleological, moral arguments, or do you reason in terms of God is the best explanation for the world in which we live? It's fine-tuning. How how have you how do you move in, in concerning that type of issue? Okay. Uh, yeah, I, oh, you know, being in philosophy and in apologetics, I just, I just love all the classical arguments for God's existence. Um, I, I, as I mentioned, I, I got started with the Kalam, uh, yeah. uh, reading that, uh, in, in that anthology, whenever I started to study it more, I think I read about it more in uh, JP Moreland's, uh, scaling the secular city. Oh yeah. Uh, then I got into William Lane Craig on it and I've just always loved that argument. You know, I, I understand, uh, from some of Jeff Zwierink's material that in, in, uh, con contemporary science there, they kind of have a workaround for the beginning. But I mean, the, the philosophical argument that there must be a beginning to the universe, I just think is so powerful. Uh, but I also have appreciated, you know, but I also like that, that Kantian uh, inspired uh, moral argument, you know, right. kind of giving this, this transcendental idea that, well, if we, if there is not, you know, if there's no all powerful, all good being, uh, then there can't be objective morality. I just find all these so compelling and, and I love the, the more um, the, the argument from fine tuning. Yeah. Um, I especially, I, I think there is a cumulative case to be made. You know, whenever you talk about all those moral argument, yeah. uh, design, teleology, but I've also come to appreciate Aquinas is uh, uh, what, you know, what some people call vertical arguments. They don't point to a beginning 
uh, they point to the fact that, and, and it's so interesting, you know, Aquinas seems to use um, all of Aristotle's four causes, uh, right. uh, formal cause, final cause, material cause, efficient causality. And he, he uses every one and says that they all point to God existing at every moment at which we exist. So I've always loved those. I, I wouldn't go as far as to say it's a demonstration, like one plus one equals two, that once anyone looks at it, they can know that God exists. But I think when you do understand the metaphysics of it, it gets as close to a demonstration as you, as you'll get, yeah. uh, you know, basically nothing would exist. There would be no change. Uh, all, all those things. Uh, if God didn't exist at every moment we exist. And I, another reason why I like Aquinas's five ways is that I think it, it's, it, it gets you to a more robust uh, philosophical theology. Uh, it gives you a better idea of God's attributes that you can um, uh, reason to using just philosophy uh, apart from uh, special revelation. Uh, you know, there's only so many things you can uh, conclude about God's uh, attributes from the Kalam and arguments like that. Uh, you know, the, the design and, and uh, uh, fine tuning arguments are especially even more limited. Um, but uh, Aquinas's five ways are really robust as far as all the attributes you can include um, using his uh, metaphysics. So I, I've lo I love those. Um, I've also come to appreciate uh, more of an evidential approach uh, in, in, in just, you know, at SES, they taught us that three-step method that uh, uh, Norm Geisler is famous for. And I just try to meet people where they are. Yeah. If someone doesn't want to hear a big, long, drawn-out argument for God's existence, then I just like to talk about Jesus' resurrection. Uh, one of my favorite um you know, because some people might think this is enough to, I mean, if they don't think that miracles are possible or that God exists, then you do need to talk about that. But I, I, I love emphasizing the, uh, the, um, um, uh, oh, what, what's that called? The, the, uh, the Jerusalem factor, mm -hmm. uh, that Gary Habermas and Michael Icona talk about okay. the fact, the fact that, uh, Christianity got started in the one place that it shouldn't have got started, you know, mm -hmm. In Jerusalem, you had the Jews, and if you if you said that God was a man, uh, you would get stoned for doing that. Uh, it was also where the Romans were, uh, and and the Romans just wanted to keep the peace, and they were polytheistic, so they weren't having Christianity at all. And I, I've talked to my students in my apologetics classes about this before. I say, imagine that we're going to try to come up with some polytheistic religion. And we're gonna and and our idea is that we're gonna get it started in in Mecca or Medina or someplace like that. Right. Yeah. You know, like, how well is that gonna go for us? And why on earth would we decide that that's what we're gonna do if we're looking to get money and power and fame? Yeah. You know, uh, you would start it someplace where it's more gonna be more receptive. You wouldn't start it in the place where you're gonna get killed. And what you see is, you know, those the the apostles and their followers did not accumulate money and power. A lot of them went to their deaths for something that they just believed to be true. I, I can't explain it in any other way. You know, there, there's so many false messiahs around the first century and nobody followed them like the apostles followed uh, Jesus. And I just think that that is, is powerful evidence that God exists and uh, he appeared to us in the person of Jesus Christ. Amen. Uh, Kyle, tell us a little bit about your family and your favorite sports team. Hmm. 
Oh, okay. Yeah. Yeah. Um, well, I'm from Lubbock, Texas. I grew up in the West Texas area. And uh, um, I actually, my wife and I got uh, married a little late. We, we met and we're, uh, we married in when we were both 30. <laughs> um, but we both grew up around Lubbock, Texas. And uh, it's funny thing is that we met in the Dallas area. Uh, we both went to Texas Tech as undergrads. Um, but yeah, we've been married for about 11 or so years now. Uh, we have two boys, uh, Thomas and Jack. Uh, and they are about to turn 10 and eight and, um, yeah, we're, we're just, we're having a great time. We live in, we live in Lubbock. Uh, My wife works in uh, business end of healthcare. She works with a company that manages wound care centers and hospitals. Um, I've been teaching at South Plains college. Uh, I've worked there part-time while I was earning my PhD at, at, at SES. And now I teach, uh, intro to philosophy, intro to world religions, an English composition oh. uh, and, and logic at, at uh, South Plains College. Right. And uh, yeah, it, it's, it's, it's great. I love it. Um, when I first started uh, in, into philosophy, I thought that teaching was going to be a kind of a necessary evil. And I was just, you know, I mainly wanted to do it to write and research, but I never realized how much I would love teaching. And the fact that I'm an employed philosopher <laughs> is just amazing in itself. But also I get to live in Lubbock, Texas, where I'm from. Mm -hmm. Uh, So I just feel really blessed. Um, uh, But but yeah, uh, so uh, we live there. Uh, We're big Star Wars fans, uh, big uh, Disney fans. And my boys like to, uh, my oldest one likes basketball. They both like to play soccer. My youngest likes to play baseball. And uh, we play a lot of Minecraft on our Xbox in our free time. Um, favorite sports team. My, my problem is that I, I love all sorts of sports. Uh, we, we, I watch more football than anybody else does. Uh, we all of us watch basketball and I watch uh, more baseball uh, than others do. Um, if I was going to say we had favorite team, it would basically be uh, Texas Tech University teams Um, because my wife and I both went to Texas Tech as undergrads and but I've got to tell you, Ken, you know, so I I like Dallas teams mainly. Like like I said, whenever I uh, when we lived, when my wife and I, uh, Lacey, met in the Dallas area, that was around the time that the Mavericks uh, won the national championship and it was also around the same time that the texas rangers went to the uh, world series so it was an amazing time to be in (laughs) dallas uh i'm also a cowboys fan (laughs) so um i've i've always been a football fan the thing is with being a texas tech fan though and uh uh, anybody from texas tech i hope you don't uh, think i'm being too negative but we've had Texas Tech and and being a Cowboy fan, it's kind of similar. Every year it's hyped up, and then every year we don't we don't win. <laughs> you know, um, you have high powered offenses though, right? Yes. Are y'all familiar with uh, Tech? Like it was. I mean, I am a little I, bit. I, I always think of it as like a few years ago, but I was looking it up the other day. It's actually almost like a decade ago. But at one time we had uh, Cliff Kingsbury who is a red, who is a red Raider. He was a quarterback at tech. He was our head coach. 
And at one point we had uh, Patrick Mahomes was our starting quarterback. Mm-hmm. And, um, oh, uh, what's his name? The, the quarterback for the Browns. Uh, he was at OU. Do y'all know who I'm talking about? Oh, yeah, um, yeah, yeah. His name. Uh, uh, yeah, I'm sorry. His name escapes me. I know I can picture him, though. <laughs> oh, let's see. What was his name? Well, it's it's just amazing if you if you ever if you haven't ever heard the story. So we had it's Patrick Mahomes and um, Baker Mayfield. Okay, there Baker you go. Mayfield walked on at Tech, and then Patrick Mahomes came later after Cliff Kingsbury recruited him. Wow. At one point, we had Patrick Mahomes as our starting quarterback, and Baker Mayfield was our bench warmer. Mm. And he left Tech because he wasn't going to get a scholarship. That's what he says. And he went to OU. So, I mean, it was just an amazing time. And it seems like Tech can't ever keep a good thing when it has it. And they, <laughs> now, if you, if you look at it though, Kingsbury's record is, I think it's a blow of 500 uh, at Tech. So obviously they weren't happy with that, but I was just happy that we had a coach who loved Lubbock, loved Tech. They say, I, I've heard that he wasn't good at recruiting. Um, and so that's why uh, the NFL is better for him. But anyways, um, now it's kind of, we're back to the same old, it's kids gets hyped up. But um, I, but we love tech. Uh, we love tech football. Texas Tech has had some amazing success in basketball in recent years, and uh, and we also like to watch them play baseball. So it's fun, uh, and all the games are local. I can go to the to the games when we want. So that, that's probably what I watch the most. But other than that, yeah, I'm a Dallas and a Rangers and a Mavs fan. So <laughs> well, Kyle, it's been good to get to know you a little bit. I know that our listeners uh, have enjoyed this and. Again, uh, Joe, we want to recommend um, Kyle's book, Tomism and the Problem of Animal Suffering. So Kyle, thanks for spending time with us and we sure appreciate you being here with us as a visiting scholar. Yeah, I, yes, just, want, I just want to add a word. You, you began this podcast by talking about how you had all kinds of questions and you sought answers to those and now in listening, you know, for the past hour or so, I can tell that your students are going to get their answers, their questions answered from you. So great work on your part. Uh, uh, I'm sure um, people have already told you that, but if not, they're going to tell you that uh, I'm sure you're, you're a fine teacher. So we appreciate your coming on the podcast. Yeah, thank you, Joe, and thank you, Ken. It's been really fun uh, talking to you all about everything, and I really appreciate uh, the Scholar uh, program, and it's re- it's been awesome so far. Um, this is my second day uh, this week being here with everyone uh, here uh, at, at RTB, and I've been having a blast, and it's just been so much fun interacting with all, all the RTB scholars and the staff, and uh, I, I appreciate you all having me on. Exactly. All right. Let's see if I have your website uh, correct. BKyleKelts.com. Is that correct, Kyle? Do I have that right? Yes, that's right. Uh, B. Kyle Kelts with no uh, dots or anything. That's my academic website. Um, I have papers uh, up there on the problem of animal suffering and, and other things I've written about. Um, I, I also I, I, I have a YouTube channel that I've put uh, apologetic videos up. 
uh, on, and that's just B Kyle Kelts. And uh, I also, uh, all my YouTube videos I published as podcast episodes, and um, those are available on iTunes and Spotify and Google uh, Podcasts and all that stuff. So if you just search my name, B Kyle Kelts, you can find that. All right. Wonderful. So, yeah. We'll uh, spell that for people. It's uh, K E L T Z. So, B Kyle Kelps. All right. Thanks again. Uh, let's wrap it up here. Thank you for listening to this podcast. And remember, don't miss any of these. You can subscribe to Straight Thinking wherever you get your podcasts, and you'll get one delivered to you each week. You can also contact Ken and let him know what's on your mind and ask any questions or provide. Uh, feedback. That's at, at RTB underscore K samples. For Ken Samples, this is Joe Aguirre with a reminder that the goal of apologetics is not victory, but truth. Thanks for listening and join us for the next edition of Straight Thinking. Thank you for listening. Your prayers and financial support are reaching people with reasons for faith in Jesus Christ, our Creator and Savior. To allow Reasons to Believe programs like this to continue, make your gift today at reasons.org.